We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 63. I have been so excited to share this podcast guest with you today because she is known for her work ethic and working with some of the most incredible top professionals in our industry today, like Neil Jones and Kent Farrington, to name a few. While she is navigating through life as a professional show jumper, it is amazing to hear her story about how she got to where she is today. So without further ado, let's hear it from Mavis. Spencer. So happy you came on the podcast today. I have tons of questions. Would love to hear about how you got to where you are today. But yeah, let's rewind and would love to hear about how you started riding and how you got into the equestrian industry. Well, I have an aunt that lives in Massachusetts, and she was actually one of the people that developed uh, artificial insemination and being able to like ship semen and do all of that as far as the breeding side of things goes. Gotcha. So she was actually the one that got me into it. She put me on my first horse when I was two, and my parents basically had told me that I wasn't allowed to take lessons till I was five. Uh, so mm-hmm. on my fifth birthday, I went running into their room in the morning and woke them both up and didn't even care about any other presents. I was just really excited to be able to go and find a <laughs> barn and start taking lessons, uh, which was, you know, so that's sort of how I got into it. I had a very naughty first pony named Norton who I half leased with another girl at the barn. And honestly, if I rode three times in a week, I fell off twice and ended up in the hospital (laughs) once. So it was maybe not the best experience, but I think it taught me a lot, a lot about riding and about being sticky. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you fall off, you get back on, which my mom said What would he do? Oh God. Have you ever seen the Ed the Naughty Pony video? Yes. It was fairly, (laughs) fairly reminiscent of that. Um, It just sort of depended on the day. Sometimes he didn't want to go to one side of the ring and he would spin me off. Mm-hmm. Once we started jumping small jumps, he would land and either stop and put his head down and I would go off over his head <laughs> or he would land and take off bucking. Sometimes I went off over the ears. Sometimes I went straight over his tail. It was oh, just gosh. sort of, you name it, he could figure it out. So wow. I spent a lot of time on the ground rather mm-hmm. than in a saddle back then. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's kind of my introduction to the horses. That is so funny. So you, for some reason, kept sticking with it. And then as a junior, what did that look like for you for riding? I actually rode with Dick Carvin and Susie Schroer of Meadow Grove okay. up in LA. And I started with them, I think I was maybe 11. So I was definitely on the younger side for the the clientele that they had at the time. They had a lot of like older juniors that were doing, you know, the big egg and the junior jumpers. So it was really great to be in that environment and learn uh, from those older riders. And their biggest thing was they really prided themselves on us being horsemen, not just riders. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in the barn learning from the grooms, the barn managers, the farriers. So that was a really, you know, great thing for me, obviously turning, eventually becoming a professional, being able to see all of those sides of the barn growing up. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And that's something that I feel like is a little bit more rare these days. So it's really cool that you have that horsemanship foundation. Yeah. You know, we would come to the barn and there would be some mornings where all of our tack would be in a pile and you sort of had to sift through and put your bridle back together Mm. um, and know which bit went on your horse and all that sort of stuff. So they found a lot of different ways to teach us how to do that. I went to Europe when I was, I had just turned 16, I think. And I went to Europe for a summer uh, and interned with Neil Jones. And it was nice because I went over there and I think they sort of had this expectation being an American girl that I wasn't really going to be super helpful in the barn. But after a couple of days, I had my string of a couple younger horses and, you know, we'd show up, you feed, muck out, we would start riding. Some days we would school the horses in the ring. Uh, and Neil was big on taking the young ones out. So we would hack out a lot on the roads if they weren't jumping. And that was a really great experience because I think, especially over here in the States, you don't really have, I mean, it's getting bigger now, obviously with breeding increasing and stuff, but it's just so expensive to develop young horses over here. So I didn't really have that experience, which was great to go over there and get that and go to some shows in Europe. And that was something that I really appreciated them letting me do. Cause I think down the line, when I ended up going back, I already had that knowledge because I had been over there. Yeah. We had Neil on the podcast a little bit ago and love hearing Mm -hmm. his story and his mission behind what he does in his program. How did you get in touch with him and start interning with him? So we had bought a lot of horses from him growing up. So whenever we would go to Europe, we would go to his barn um, and try horses. Ricky Neal actually bought one of his really good junior jumpers uh, from Neil at the time. So I had met him a handful of times before, but I didn't really know him that well. So when I went over for that summer, you know, it was obviously a very new experience all around in that respect, but he really gave me even then a lot of opportunities. You know, I had a bunch of horses to ride. It wasn't just limited to barn work, um, which honestly I would have been fine with. I expected to be learning by being around it, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, But I had, I went to sort of a training show with five or six young horses and was able to do that a couple times a week. And then towards the end, I had an eight-year-old that was able to do some more real classes. So uh, he let me go and do the, I think it was a two-star at Beerveld actually, which is a really big show in Belgium. Um, And I took that one and we actually won a meter 20 class the first day and it was just a lot of fun. So ever since then we kept in touch. And at the time I was working for Derek Kenny actually, And I knew that I wanted to start riding again at some point, but I really wanted to get back over to Europe. And while I was grooming, have the opportunity to go to some of those bigger European shows that I didn't think I would have the chance to go to as a rider. So I started working for them in April and it was the WEG year actually for Lorenzo De Luca, who was riding for him and he was trying to get on the Italian team. So I got to go to Rome. We were part of the Nations Cup there, which was an incredible experience working for an Italian rider right. and that atmosphere. We did Falsterbo, a lot of really you know great four and five star shows in Europe. And Lorenzo ended up getting hurt at the WEG, which was when Neil sort of said in the interim of Lorenzo coming back, would you be able to ride a couple? And it just sort of worked out that when he did start riding again, Neil asked me to continue doing the sales horses. And that was sort of how it was sort of a right place, right time kind of situation. Sure. And then even then in the beginning, it was, I was going to do sort of young ones and the hunter neck horses. And then I had one horse that I felt comfortable doing in the 140. And then I did it in the 145. And then I started doing the U25s. And then it just sort of started evolving from there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what he allowed me to do 
going up and starting to do my, my first three star, my first world cup qualifier, going to Wellington, jumping my first Saturday night class clear. I would have never in the hindsight, if you had told me at the time what I was going to go on and do, I would have kind of laughed and told you you were crazy, but he really Mm -hmm. made all of that possible. Amazing. Yeah, that's so cool. So if we rewind a little bit, you were having your horses and doing the Big Eck and the junior jumpers growing up. And then what was your turning point for going to working with Neil Jones to then deciding, okay, you know what, I'm going to go off on my own. I'm going to make this a professional route. You have Whitethorn now. What did that all look like and how did that unfold? So I did Wellington for my first season when I was 16. And I went out there, uh, Paris Sellen was taking a couple horses out and another big clients of Dick and Susie's, the Chad family were going there. So I was lucky enough to take my one horse and sort of be a working student, home rider sort of thing for them. Cool. And they actually set me up to be able to do the equitation with Andre Dignelli at Heritage as well. Yeah, nice. So the first year I went and I had a couple of greener equitation horses or ones that people would bring in for uh, Andre to see and sort of do on a trial period. And then the second year I went back, ended up getting one that was very green. It had actually been a broodmare, but it actually ended up being a very top equitation horse. Uh, She won a bunch of U-sets that year in Wellington. And so that was obviously an amazing experience. And at that point, being a working student for both Andre and for the clients of Dick and Susie was kind of when I realized that it was my first time really leaving California and spending an extended period of time showing somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think that was sort of the point when I left Wellington that year, the second year, I knew that I wanted to find a situation that would allow me to keep learning and hopefully make a career out of it. And I got hooked up with Kent Farrington at the time. And he's someone who For me, I wanted to go into a situation that I would want to emulate. So a system that had some sales horses, Mm -hmm. that he had Grand Prix horses of his own. And for me, that was kind of what I envisioned myself being able to do down the road. So putting myself in a situation that I could learn from that seemed really important. So I actually started working for Kent in, I think I went to Kentucky like the start of May which was actually still during my senior year of high school. I flew back from my graduation and got my car and drove up and met them at Spruce. Nice. And was with him for like nearly four years. And again, it was a great time. That was when I technically was in my last junior year being around like a top rider like that who is showing himself. And we were going to a lot of really good shows. Mm -hmm. After Spruce, we spent the summer in Kentucky. And again, he's just got such a great team around him, but it was a very different setup than what Dick and Susie had. So I think learning from that, having the sales side of it, when we were in Wellington, he brought a lot of horses over from Europe that we would sell during that time of year. And it was just a very, again, different experience. I think the level of the sport is so different compared to when you're riding as a junior. So I learned a lot from him while I was there. And that again, I took a year off before I went to college. And I actually had very little intention of going back to school after my gap year. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, I had already committed to Columbia, which was in New York City. So I was able to during the fall semester, drive out to the barn a couple days a week and still ride. And then when the spring semester came out and all the horses were in Florida, it was a 20 minute drive to the airport. And I flew down on Tuesday afternoons and I flew back on Sunday night. 
um, and was able to keep up with my schoolwork in between. They were very accommodating as far as that went. So all of the moving parts worked very well together as far as that went. And then my sophomore year, it was leading into the Olympic year in London in 2012. So I decided to take another semester off because Kent was trying out for the the team. Mm-hmm. And after Florida, he didn't have a groom. He, he was planning on going to Europe for the summer and he didn't have a groom. And I'd obviously like been around the girls that were taking care of those horses. Right. And at that point, it, I saw it as an opportunity, you know, to go to Europe and get that experience. So I actually took four horses to Europe with him that summer. Wow. And it was just me. I think I was like, had just turned 21. And we based at Ben Mare's place in, in England, which was just outside of London, and did a couple. We went to Chantilly, we went to La Coruña, we did Balkansvard, and then we came back to the States. But again, a lot of people were confused as to why I wanted to start grooming, but I just looked at it as an opportunity to learn and to grow and, again, to go to some of those bigger shows and be around those top riders. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so cool. What do you feel like you have learned the most from your experience of working with Kent Farrington? Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Um, Well, I think it was a really sort of pivotal point in your career, sort of that first job you have, so to speak, as a professional. Yeah. One, I think where you have the opportunity to go and work is huge because again, and Kent had made that point to me as well, Because before I even had a conversation with him about working for him, he was the one that, you know, put the idea in my head that I should really go somewhere where someone is doing what I want to do and learn that system and learn how they do it. And so for me, I was sort of sitting there and I looked at him and I was like, well, do you need help? Like, (laughs) I was a very shy child growing up, which I'm sure people would find hard to believe now. I think, you know, just overall being around a top rider like that, seeing how important their program is, their team around them. And that's just not limited to people that are in the barn on a daily basis. That includes your vet, your farrier, again, all of those moving parts contribute so much to your 90 seconds of success in the arena. So I think building up a program that works for each horse, having a group of people around that you trust, I think all of those things were something that I really learned from Ken. And ultimately when I left, was able to utilize in the other jobs that I had. Okay, hold that thought because I would love to take a minute to talk to you about our sponsor today. Are you familiar with the Tack Hack? Think of it as a Nordstrom rack for equestrians. Shop thetackhack.com for your favorite premium tack and riding apparel brands at discounted prices. Interested in saddle consignment? The Tack Hack also offers a minimum of 70% commission on your premium jumping or dressage saddles, plus your saddle ships to them for free. And attention listeners, Take advantage of this special podcast discount code. You can enjoy an additional 20% off your next purchase with code podcast. Limit is one time per customer. And sorry, guys, that code excludes saddles. Head over to their website at thetackhack.com and take advantage of the deals. The Tack Hack, the sport you love for less. Thank you, Tack Hack. Okay, let's head back to the episode. What does your everyday life look like? Well, I just started with Georgie. I guess it's been maybe a month now. She called me during, it was week six out in the desert. And I was there because the company that I was working for had sponsored the Friday class. And she called me and said that the rider that she had had left. And she had a couple of FEI horses, a couple of young ones. 
She does a lot of sales and leasing as well. And she just thought that we would be a good match for each other sort of thing. So I started with her week seven. Well, I guess actually it was week five. So I had a couple of days okay. at home. I got organized and then I went out to the desert and I hadn't actually shown in about two years. I broke my back oh my uh, in 2018. So I was couldn't ride for a couple of months. And then I started doing physical therapy and in the meantime was working for this equine sales website that I helped launch. But I basically, when we were out at the show, Tuesday was my first day back and I jumped a bunch of horses in the meter 10 and meter 20 schooling class. And as far as show wise goes earlier in the week, I would show a couple of the client horses in a schooling class on Wednesday or Thursday before they get out there and show for the weekend. We had quite a few clients out there that were showing in the big Eck as well as in the jumpers and a few in the hunter arena, but that I was sort of a part of. And then we had a few sales horses out there as well. So I would organize trials, be there if there were vet checks that we needed to get done and that sort of thing. And since we've been home, Georgie has an absolutely beautiful facility up in Somis, which is just north of LA. Okay. And I mean, now it's a little bit different just with the virus and all of that. So I've been riding quite a bit more but we're taking this time away from showing to get to know some of the horses that I hadn't ridden that weren't at the show to get the young ones going a little bit, work on their flat work and that kind of thing. And just sort of plan how we're going to get right into showing once that does hopefully start up again soon. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say is, I mean, obviously pending schedule for like summer, fall, winter, what does your schedule look like? Well, we had planned on doing Ali Nilfarushan's show in Temecula in May. That I went there last year just sort of from a spectator standpoint. And what Ali is doing for shows on the West Coast is incredible. Mm-hmm. Footing was amazing. The Grand Prix are built to spec. He's got an incredible amount of prize money. And not just that, you know, it's really built to have a great experience, even as a competitor. You know, the days aren't super long, everything yeah. is really well organized. So for me, I made that a big priority once, you know, it was going to start showing again to be able to compete at those shows. And that seemed like a good prep because our plan was to go to the Traverse City shows in Michigan. They have three weeks in June and then a couple more weeks in, well, July all the way through September, actually. Cool. And my friend Kyle Gold just redid the footing there. Oh, good. Everyone has just said, you know, amazing things about it as far as the horse show and also it's on a lake. So it's very family friendly. Mm. So that was our plan as far as that went. And we were going to do three weeks in June. And then the plan was to take a couple of weeks off at home after traveling and then do a week at show park on the grass and then head to Thunderbird in August okay. and do nice. the three weeks there. And then again, prioritize taking a little bit of a break, just sort of regroup and let the horses have some time at home and then head into the World Cup qualifiers in the fall. Amazing. When you were taking that time off from riding, how was that for you? I mean, obviously you kind of uh, pivoted a little bit with, you said, working on launching something else. Were you panicking that you weren't riding? Were you like freaking out about coming back to riding and making sure that you'd be ready to go? What was that process like for you? So I, I actually probably sustained the injury in February during WEF. And because it didn't initially show up on any of the x-rays or scans, I kept going. So it wasn't until the middle of June that I finally was in so much pain and just couldn't, didn't feel like I was riding the same and couldn't keep up that I went into a specialist. And that's when they told me that I had 
fractured two vertebrae and broken the wings off and all of this stuff, which really in the grand scheme of things, it made a lot of sense considering how I had been feeling. But I feel like as equestrians, we tend to just work through so much. Like we're very fast to give the horses a break and do whatever they need. But as far as our own bodies go, I think we tend to uh, abuse ourselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. So for me, I ended up going, my parents have a beautiful farm in New Hampshire. So I went and my family all comes through there. So I spent three months and saw a lot of my friends that I grew up with, a lot of my cousins, some I hadn't even met before, just because when you're showing all the time, I never really took time off other than a couple days at Christmas. Yeah. And there's that initial period where it's really great and exciting because you're seeing all these people you haven't seen mm-hmm. and spending time with family and all that. And then after about three weeks, I was like, okay, I'm okay. bored. Yeah. And I was also very <laughs> limited in, in what I could physically do. So it wasn't like yeah. I could go out and run around right. um, or engage in a lot of activities, which is very different than when you're used to you know, spending eight to 12 hours a day in the barn. Right. But I got a phone call from Donnie Gath at the end of the summer. And Carl Cook had recommended me to him to help launch this. It's called the Equine Platform. It's an online sales marketplace for professionals only to do horse sales. And to me, we've always had like, there are a few listing sites that I had actually used, but there wasn't anything that really was going out and setting trials up and giving professionals a a comprehensive database to be able to go on and shop through. So I started helping him with that. And again, that was a big adjustment just because I've never been a massively techie person. Mm. So figuring out how to, you know, build a website and all of that kind of thing, and then figuring out what it is that people really want to know about horses, what sort of information is key, building up our database of professionals all of that. Cause I've always, I did obviously sales with Neil, Mm -hmm. but it was just different when you're doing it on a scale. Like we were like, we have over a thousand professionals that we work with on the West coast. We had close to 2000 horses listed. We were putting out show lists every week so that trainers knew exactly what was for sale at that horse show, setting trials up, scheduling vet checks. Like there are so many different parts of it that when you're doing it on a scale where, you know, Neil and I had around 25 horses in, when you're suddenly dealing with over a thousand trainers and 2000 horses, it was a little bit overwhelming, but I think that's something, you know, our industry is a little bit behind as far as using tech goes to help us. So I think that that's really going to end up being a really great thing as far as the, the community goes. Yeah. Amazing. So then once you got back in the saddle, how was that? I feel like everyone kind of has their own little version. And some people say it's like riding a bike. Some people are like, I can't see a distance for the life of me. How was it for you yeah. coming back? <laughs> I actually ended up getting a, I call him my cow pony, but an eight-year-old named Phoenix last fall. A girl was moving out of my friend Bethany's barn and she needed to sell him pretty quick. So I ended up picking him up. And it was just sort of a fun comeback course, you know, like I ended up honestly trail riding him more than I ended up actually jumping him. And we would go for these like long sunset rides on the beach. And it was just amazing. And that was sort of what got me back into it. But I think it was a very no pressure kind of thing. And if there were days where I was too busy with work with the platform to get out to the barn, the kids could hop on him and like take extra lessons and that kind of thing. But Bethany really helped keep me 
riding in a capacity. Like I would school a couple of the kids horses every now and again for mm-hmm. her, which sort of let me keep jumping. And then when Georgie called me, I really, I mean, I had not jumped above a meter yeah. in two years. Yeah. Like, so I <laughs> came to the horse show and was like, all right, we're going to walk into the meter 10 and meter 20, you know, and do the schooling classes on horses I hadn't ridden. And I was a little bit worried just because again, like you said, how is your eye going to be? Is mm-hmm. it going to feel different? But, you know, the nice thing is Georgie has such amazing horses and all of the clients' horses are lovely. So it made it a lot easier as far as that transition goes. I ended up jumping a meter 30 on the first Wednesday. And I have to say that looked very big walking into the ring. (laughs) Again, I'm on a horse that she had just bought that showed in the meter 50s in Europe and was careful and scopey and you know all the parts to hope you know our idea is that he'll be one of my grand prix horses but it definitely helps when you don't feel like you're lacking in any of the the departments that you feel like you need when you think the jumps look big so yeah exactly (laughs) that uh, was great and she's been very accommodating as far as that goes she really lets me make a lot of decisions and if I feel uncomfortable about something I don't feel like she'd push me to do something uh, again that I didn't feel comfortable with so she Mm -hmm. really made the transition to get back into showing very easy. Amazing. Yeah. I feel like that is make or break. If you're coming back into it after being off for a while, the people around you, if they can be understanding and accommodating. Yeah. And I mean, even like the first couple of courses I walked, I was like, do I remember how to do this? <laughs> it's like counting out strides, which I never uh-huh. do. And I was like, all right, that is five. Like, <laughs> Land, one, to two. It's kind of like riding a bike though, you know? Yeah. yeah when I was grooming and I didn't show for three years. So at least I do have some kind of experience with taking a break and then coming back to it. So it definitely could have been a lot worse, but you'd have to call Chelsea or Georgie and ask them what their real thoughts are. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. That's awesome. What would you say is an area of the industry that you're particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? For me, I've always really loved doing sales. I think that a lot of people, you know, part of what we were trying to do with the equine platform was create more reach for trainers. I think a lot of people have sort of a small group that they either call when they have a horse that they are trying to find for a client or that they're looking to sell. So I think creating sort of a bigger network for people as far as that goes, again, both on the buying and the selling side Mm -hmm. is very important. But the other thing that I've found, especially in the past couple of years when I started riding again, people are very afraid of buying older horses or even younger mm-hmm. ones for that matter. You know, mm-hmm. they're sort of both sides of the spectrum. Right now, Georgie has three or four of, of frankly, the nicest equitation horses that I have ever seen that I would mm-hmm. have just fallen over and died if I got to ride as a junior. And, you know, if you watch them go in and watch them jump around, they're going out and they're winning the USEFs medals. They're getting, you know, high 80s in the Washingtons and all that. Yeah. And then when people ask about them and you're like, it's six, they get a little bit unshy as far as just the age goes. And then same thing on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have people that are wanting to find a first meter 40 horse for a kid to move up on, but they don't want anything that's over 12, which for me, if I was shopping for a client, you know, you want to have one that has that experience to get them out of trouble if they put it into a situation Mm. where something that is moving up as they are, yes, you can both learn together, which is something I did as a junior on my junior jumper. But at the same time, I think, 
you know, not to be afraid of a little bit of age because the way the sport is now, there's so much help that we can give them. And, you know, as far as vet work goes, as far as corrective shoeing, I think the footing is getting so much better. I understand protecting your investment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, having that experience is always really nice. If you have a client who jumps in and panics a little bit and ends up doing five and a six coming into a double, having Mm -hmm. a horse that knows how to backpedal, how to fit the one and then jump out. Like I think it's safer for everyone as opposed to a horse who's just going to keep barreling through and having Uh it potentially be a bad situation. Exactly. Um, And same thing again, you know, young horses, some young ones, when I was growing up, Randy Sherman, there was this amazing equitation horse that Susie imported called Gladiator. And he actually won uh, McClay finals as a five-year-old. And you would have never guessed looking at him. I mean, he was so brave. He took no prep to get to the ring. He was Mm -hmm. beautiful. He had this amazing canter, this amazing jump, this amazing balance. So same thing again, I think people get very afraid of young ones where some horses just, you kind of can't teach them that they just have it. And I think that's something that Georgie's really good at picking out was able to show a couple of the amputation horses in like meter classes before the kids did them. And they were just, I mean, it's like driving around in a Ferrari kind of (laughs) thing. It's an amazing feeling. Like you feel so pretty and they Mm -hmm. jump so amazing. And like the picture is great. It's just a lot of fun. That's so cool. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just to focus more on the overall health of a horse when purchasing versus the age. There are so many horses that show at a very high level, like into their late teens, and you would never know. You'd think they were 12. Yeah, I mean, I think Flexible was still jumping the Grand Prix and he was like 18 or 19, Yeah, yeah. which especially out on the West Coast is obviously a very recognizable name. Well, I mean, anywhere really, which took him all over the world, world cup finals, all that kind of thing. So I think again, you know, it's a testament to people's programs, Mm -hmm. the fitness, the horse, you know, the grooms, the vets, the farriers, all of that, that goes into it. I think that aspect of the sport has risen so much in its level as well, that I just don't think that's as much of a concern anymore. Totally. That's a really good point. Well, Mavis, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Equestrian Podcast today. I think that your story is amazing and the winding road that got you to where you are today is incredible. And I wish you all the best. Thank you for having me. It was great. Uh, Hopefully I'll speak to you soon. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.